0: You are listening to Light Hearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Ace Copy Editor and Secretary of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy.
1: (laughs) Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for that.
0: Sure. Today is September 24th, 2023, and this is episode 244 of Lighthearted. In a minute, we'll listen to a conversation I had with five people about Cape Blanco Lighthouse in Oregon. First, is there anything notable about today's date, Cindy?
1: Well, for one thing, Jim Henson was born in Greenville, Mississippi on September 24th, 1936. Everyone knows he created the Muppets, of course. Anyone who's seen the TV show Fraggle Rock, created by Jim Henson, knows there was a lighthouse in the series.
0: Yeah, I I believe uh, people have asked me a number of times over the years what lighthouse it was that they used in Fraggle Rock.
1: (laughs) The lighthouse in Fraggle Rock was actually St. Ma's, which marks the entrance to Falmouth Harbor in Cornwall, England. For the first two seasons, the lighthouse keeper was played by Fulton McKay, a Scottish actor who was also a playwright.
0: Cool. You know, I've never seen uh, an episode of Fraggle Rock. I've seen little bits of it, but I, I was a little old to be watching it in the '80s when it came out. <laughs> Did you watch it?
1: I've actually never seen a full episode either, but um, lots of people my age love it.
0: Yeah, well, I love Jim Henson stuff in general. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: So we should probably get to today's interview. Uh, please help me introduce it, Cindy.
1: Sure, Jeremy. The peninsula known as Cape Blanco, the most westerly point on the coast of Oregon, was named by Spanish explorers because of its high, light-colored cliffs. The reefs around the Cape were a hindrance to navigation, leading to the establishment of a lighthouse in 1870. The brick tower, 59 feet tall, with its light 256 feet above mean high water, still stands. It's the oldest continuously operated lighthouse in Oregon, and also the highest above sea level. The lantern room originally held a fixed first-order Fresnel lens.
0: Two keepers had unusually long stays: James Langless, who was keeper for 42 years, and James Hughes, who stayed for 37 years. Cape Blanco also had the first woman lightkeeper in Oregon, Mabel Bretherton, who was appointed second assistant keeper in 1903.
1: In 1936, the light was electrified, and the original lens was replaced by a rotating, second-order lens from France. The light station was automated and de-staffed in 1980. Twelve years later, the lens was seriously damaged in a vandalism incident. The lens was later repaired, with Pyrex replacing its damaged components.
0: Today, the Cape Blanco Heritage Society works cooperatively with several partners to manage three historic sites on the southern Oregon coast, the Hughes House and Ranch, Cape Blanco Light Station, and the Port Orford Lifeboat Station.
1: Rebecca Malamud-Evans is the Executive Director of the Cape Blanco Heritage Society. Brian and Catherine Zimmerman, and also Mike and Teresa Hewitt, have been active volunteers at the Lighthouse.
0: I spoke with all five of them recently. It's actually the most people I've interviewed at one time. They all contributed a lot to the discussion, but Mike Hewitt was able to fill in a lot of recent history because he was the manager of Cape Blanco State Park. So let's listen to our conversation about Cape Blanco Lighthouse Now. I'm speaking today with Rebecca Malamud-Evans, the Executive Director of the Cape Blanco Heritage Society. Also joining us are volunteers Brian Zimmerman and Catherine Zimmerman, along with Mike and Teresa Hewitt. So a good place to start, I think, would be a little bit of history of the light station Cape Blanco Light Station. Why was a lighthouse needed at Cape Blanco
2: in the first place?
0: Mike, uh, would you like to take that question?
2: Sure. Uh, the reason I'll take this question is just a, a little bit of history. I was the park manager at uh, Cape Blanco State Park, okay, and we we live there. So the reason for the lighthouse was when they were making lighthouses, of course, for ship safety, and the Port Orford Reef, Lays right in what was the uh, ancient mariner's path for uh, sailing ships to sail up and down the coast, and so the reef um, claimed several ships. And uh, at the time we were building lighthouses, then the lighthouse was uh, point was you know noted as a place that we needed to put a lighthouse, and it was an excellent location with height and ability to be seen from quite some distance
0: do i remember correctly that it's the highest lighthouse in oregon is that correct
2: it, it's the highest in elevation off from yeah. sea level it right. is not yeah. the highest not the structure. tallest
0: yeah not it's the, the, tallest, not the tallest, tallest structure it's the yeah.
2: highest off from sea level i know
0: there's probably too many stories to talk about today but maybe uh, at least a couple of the most interesting stories related to the people who live there over the years the keepers and families brian would you like to take that question
3: there are several notable lighthouse keepers. Probably the first to talk about would be Keeper Langless. He came in 1876 and was there for 42 years. He and his wife Elizabeth raised six children out on that light and a tough place to raise kids. They also won multiple efficiency stars and he never set foot in another lighthouse. However, two of his three sons also became lighthouse keepers.
0: Wow. So 42 years, that's unusual for a keeper to be at one place for that long.
3: Absolutely. And then the second uh, notable would be James S. Hughes, who was part of the Hughes family. I think he probably got sick of the dairy business because he became a lighthouse keeper and commuted to the lighthouse for 37 years. We also have Mabel Bretherton, who was the very first female lighthouse
0: keeper in Oregon. Yeah, she was an assistant keeper for, for a time, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. She
3: was, and then she was promoted to a head keeper position up in Washington.
0: I understand uh, Teresa has actually written a history about the light station, is that correct?
4: Yes. H. Burnett was the first keeper at Cape Blanco Lighthouse. And his story is interesting mostly because of his background before he got that far, in that he actually came to this area and he was here for the fire that happened i think 1868 and he had come from another lighthouse was living here in port orford and during that fire he threw his clothes overboard basically onto the beach hoping they would get wet and he would save his clothes but maybe (laughs) not his house turns out he's his house was saved his clothes burned in the fire So it kind of makes a comical story for our very first keeper.
0: I'd rather lose my clothes than my house anytime. (laughs) That's (laughs)
4: true. True.
0: So I understand
2: there are also a lot of shipwrecks? I will take that. There was a notable shipwreck while Mabel Brotherton was um, an assistant keeper there. And in the logs, there are stories of how they searched up and down the beach for survivors. The chancellor They found articles, but I don't believe they found any survivors from that uh, shipwreck. I was wondering about
0: the the keepers' houses at Cape Blanco. I understand, was it, there were two houses at one time, is that correct? But they're gone now. What happened to the houses there?
3: I'll take that. This is Brian. And the keepers' houses were deemed to be unnecessary once the station was de-staffed. So probably for as much as anything else, liability reasons, You don't want abandoned buildings sitting out for somebody to come in and commit vandalism and perhaps fall through the floor and make their
2: attorneys rich. Right. During the war, okay, Cape Blanco became, the World War II, Cape Blanco became an important site, and um, there were more things that were built at Cape Blanco that happened for the Coast Guard and the military side of that. So there was a quite a complex of Loran and radar and underground submarine uh, location devices that were built on Cape Blanco. And so they refurbished and built newer houses for that. There was commander's quarters. There was barracks quarters. There were shops. There was married Uh, housing quarters that were out there so after the coast guard took over the lighthouse keeping responsibilities the houses that were built number one the first keeper's quarters and then eventually the second keeper's quarters because there wasn't enough room for the hughes family to stay out there in the same quarters as uh, they did originally but as they originally were there And then those houses became in disrepair. And then eventually that disrepair, they were removed from the site. So it, you know, it's just a transition from the time. And then, of course, Cape Blanco is not a friendly place for buildings to survive the same way that they survive on um, other places in the world. Lots of damage from storms and wind, lots of moisture that attacks wood structures.
0: Sure. Uh, let's move on and talk about the the lens. Okay. I'd like to get into a little bit. So Originally, there was a first-order Fresnel lens when the lighthouse went into service. And later, if I remember right, it was in the 1930s. It was uh, changed to a second-order lens, which is still in place today. But something uh, not so uh, good happened to that lens in 1992.
2: So one of the things that we have tried uh, very much to do on this subject is, is that these were um, young uh, students in our community that caused vandalism to the lighthouse. They did their time, they served their things, they paid their fines. We have tried not to make this a, how do I want to say it, a sensationalized item. Okay, we've Mm -hmm. put it basically on the back burner, not to make it a bad thing for them and their lives in the future. So yes, the vandalism did happen. I was uh, able to help find with the Coast Guard Harden Optical, which was located in Bandon. Uh, and they are a lens maker. And uh, Mr. Harden and I worked together to, uh, with the Coast Guard to fix the lens and replace the lens as close as they could. Now, glass and all of those kinds of things were not the same, um, but Mr. Hardin's group was able to reconstruct the lens and the broken pieces of the, the main lens and the other and put them back in the lighthouse um, as was repaired. But um, I was involved with the entire thing of finding out who did it. We actually were home that evening when it happened.
0: Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. And I agree with you that certainly if the perpetrators, uh, you know, paid uh, their dues and everything, then uh, we don't need to dwell on that. I just think it's a great story that the lens was, you were able to restore it or replace the the missing or the damaged.
2: Uh, Absolutely. That's you know. that's a fantastic story. And, and it cost $30,000 to do it in those days. Um, so, I mean, it was not cheap. It cost a lot of money.
0: Yeah. Uh, these days, as you might know, there's a guy down in Florida, Dan Spinella, who makes replica Fresnel lenses or pieces of Fresnel lenses from acrylic. Uh, and uh, he's kind of the go-to guy for it today. But it sounds like you found a great company that did that work for you back then.
2: Well, the more amazing thing is that it's 26 miles from us in yeah. Bandon, in Oregon. That, that's the amazing thing, that it would be that close. Right, yeah, that is that was a, a lucky and, and one. Harden Optical is a special company made makes makes lenses for our military for oh, things okay. like missiles and all of those kinds of things. So it's not a well-known company.
0: Yeah, well, that's great. So uh, moving ahead in time, uh, I understand that about the mid nineteen nineties, and you were there, of course, Mike, uh, at the time. The staff of uh, you and the staff of uh, the state park, Cape Blanco State Park. Uh, opened the lighthouse, I believe, for the first time to the public. Correct me if I'm wrong about that.
2: That story starts many, many years before that, in that I was an Oregon State Park manager, and I was on the north coast at Cape Lookout State Park. And there was a lighthouse there at Cape Mears. And um, they had tried uh, a couple of times to open that lighthouse to the public through some volunteers. And what it caused was actually more damage to the lighthouse and uh, through um, just not enough management and, and not enough caring. So I was given the job of finding a way to open the lighthouse to the public as the assistant manager. And I did that. And during those days, we started the Oregon State Park, started the Oregon State Park host program which is the basis for the volunteers that um, help our state parks do the job they have with the limited resources. In 1981, I designed and created the Oregon State Parks Lighthouse Host Program. That program started at Cape Mears. In 1986, I was promoted to the district manager at Cape Blanco State Park. During those intervening years, my wife, Teresa, and I were instrumental in helping many of the lighthouses and the groups along the Oregon coast design programs and help them open the lighthouses to the public. There There were many opportunities for us to be involved with most of the lighthouses on the Oregon coast. Then once I came to Cape Blanco as the park manager, And I got the opportunity to visit with the Coast Guardsmen that were housed at the lighthouse as the keepers. And one of my dreams was to open Cape Blanco Lighthouse to the public. It was one of the few lighthouses in the world where, because of the change in the lantern from the first order to the second order, you had enough room to take people up in the lantern room Mm. and stand beside. The, the lens and watch it operate and get the view of the what the lighthouse keeper saw when he operated the, the lighthouse that dream was was a little difficult um, at the time there were multiple items that were uh, buildings and other kinds of things at the lighthouse that were you know would be a detriment to the to the program if people, could get into them, they might have accidents and other kinds of things that you didn't want to have. So I started talking with the U.S. Coast Guard, and the U.S. Coast Guard decided that the best way to do that would be to transfer the land to the Oregon State Parks, and then they would uh, take care of it and maintain it. Through that process, we found out that there is a historical program that there's a succession for property uh, of federal government property where it goes to the uh, National Park Service and then goes through a list of the military. Is it a point we want to keep because of national security? Is it blah, blah, blah? Anyway, and the tribes come into that. And the tribes come into that before the state parks do, okay, In in that succession process. So the tribes said, well, we'd like to have it. And the Coast Guard said, well, we, we really don't, we want the lighthouse to operate. So we really don't want the tribes to take it because that's not what they want it. And, and the tribes have a bona fide interest in the lighthouse. The lighthouse is actually built on a shell midden. And mm-hmm. so it is a, you know, it is a historic Native American site and, and rightly so. So, from that process, the Coast Guard passed on, I think it was close to 40 acres, but in that 40 acres that came to the state parks were the buildings that needed to be removed. Once that happened, then I had the authority to remove those buildings in preparation for the possibility of like opening the lighthouse. During that process, I also got together with the stakeholders at that time. And the stakeholders at that time were the U.S. Coast Guard, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, the Coquille Indian Tribe, and the Siletz Indian Tribe is is also involved because they're the place that the Native Americans from here were moved to on the North Coast uh, during the late 1800s. And so they have a vested interest in that the the Tootney Indians were the actual Native Americans that were here as their aboriginal area. So from that, the other two agencies that were involved were, of course, the Oregon State Parks, which bordered it and just acquired the new land, and the Oregon State Historic Preservation Office. Now, at this time, we were just developing... Uh, friends groups in the state of Oregon. The legislature in 1987 had allowed the formation of friends groups around the state, things like Friends of Silver Falls, Friends of Tryon Creek. Those organizations all got started at that time. And so as a side note, um, I looked around and we had the potential of the lighthouse, but we also had the Hughes House And we had the Port Orford Heads lifeboat station in Port Orford. So I gathered a a group of people from around the area that were prominent people. And I asked them if they'd be interested in starting a group. So the first group that eventually has become the Heritage Society was the Friends of Cape Blanco. And they were started by me in 1988. and actually Teresa was the first president of that group, and so the original group met many times, and uh, an agreement was formed, and the agreement was formed that the Coast Guard would keep the lighthouse property, the BLM would become the managing agencies, and we would have periodic meetings with the, the group, the Native Americans, so that they were involved in not only preserving their sites, but preserving, you know, their heritage out there and also were involved in not wanting to be the day to day operations of it. And so our part as Oregon state parks was to create the space and manage the day to day operations through use of volunteer park hosts. And so for the first 10 or 12 years, that was exactly how it was managed. Oregon State Parks put the hosts out there. I personally created the first visitor center in the garage of the uh, old commander station that was there. In that place, we also had hosts who came in who were artists and they depicted scenes originally of the Native Americans that were approved, and we did interpretation for both the Native Americans and the Lighthouse. That's where it originally came in. Uh, later on, the uh, Port Orford Heritage Society was formed after I left State Park. And that was a separate group in the Friends of Cape Blanco. So the Friends of Cape Blanco were involved with the Lighthouse and the Hughes House. And the Heritage Society was involved with the uh, Coast Guard Station. Uh, a few years later, Um, then it was determined that, you know, really we're duplicating efforts. So uh, Mm -hmm. the uh, Cape Blanco Heritage Society merged with the uh, Friends of Cape Blanco and have become the group that they are today that Mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca is now the executive manager of. So... Uh, I will end this by saying, once in a lifetime, you get to do something that makes a difference, and I am proud to be one of the people that has made a difference in our ability to visit the Cape Blanco Lighthouse.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for clarifying all that, for filling in all that history. I certainly wasn't aware of a a lot of that. You're the best person to to tell us about that because you've been there for so much of it. So thank you for for all you've done there, Mike, uh, over the years. Uh, Let's uh, move up to public access these days. Uh, It's my understanding the Lighthouse is open to the public on a regular basis. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that, uh, when it's open uh, and are, are there tours there? How does that work?
3: So this is Brian Zimmerman. We have definitely A lot of people come visit from all over the world. We do have some challenges. The road has uh, deteriorated a great deal, so people have to walk up. It's about, uh, what, a third of a mile? quarter, quarter. to a third of a mile, and not a real easy hike for elderly people, but we do have a lot of people come up. The Lighthouse Visitor Center is open. We have a diorama there of the Original lighthouse grounds. We start people with the tour there. I talk about some of the background and then we go over to the lighthouse itself. We are not able to even go into the tower anymore, but we get to share a lot of history and a lot of things about the lighthouse keepers' lives.
0: You just brought it up. I was going to ask about the current situation. I understand the lighthouse is closed due to structural concerns.
5: Well, in 2020, uh, Susan L. Licht, historic preservation architect, came in and wrote this comprehensive study of all of the problems with our current lighthouse. Um, it has uh, numerous problems. A paint was applied that uh, retained held water in and has advanced corrosion of the metal parts, and um, So once this plan came out in 2020, that's when they um, closed the tower to tours. The workroom was still open. And then they sent out a group of specialists, uh, masonry specialists and iron specialists. They came out in September 2022 and took a look at the the findings from, from the plan. And they came up with a price tag of six hundred and eighty two thousand dollars to reopen the tower to the public. And that doesn't even include the cost of the road, which has been deteriorating at an alarming rate. So we have quite a job in front of us.
0: So uh, I believe you have launched a a fundraising campaign. uh, Save our light. Or is it is it has it actually been launched yet?
5: We started our campaign on um, August 12th with our Save Our Lighthouse uh, concert that took place at the Port Orford Lightboat Station Museum because of safety concerns of dancing out of Cape Blanco. There was 30 mile per hour winds that day, and we had a band with a lot of equipment, so I <laughs> had to take it down the, yeah. the lighthouse gate road that's deteriorating. But uh, Save Our Lighthouse is our effort to begin actively raising the funds needed to reopen the tower to the public for tours. It initially began as a letter-writing campaign in which we wrote partners, government leaders, area businesses, and national agencies to raise awareness of our lighthouse. This resulted in many people reaching out and offering to help Cape Blanco Heritage Society in any way possible. It has also resulted in new members to our group, which was an added bonus. We invited artists who have a shared interest in lighthouses to donate work for our cause. One artist, Charles Ziga of Ziga Media, donated a vector image that he created for his Maritime Retro series featuring our our nation's lighthouses. We're going to use the art as a signature graphic in our fundraising campaign over the coming year With the artist donating proceeds of the sale of the associated art print to our fundraiser. The Cape Blanco Lighthouse will be featured in the 2024 calendar published by Ziga Media, helping to further raise awareness of our cause. Since then, we have had other artists step up wanting to donate work to help save our lighthouse. A retired firefighter in Washington State has donated his Cape Blanco Lighthouse photograph to be featured on any merchandise that we want to produce to help save our lighthouse. Artist Darren Evans has donated his mural art to the cause, producing magnets, postcards, and more for the effort. He also has an idea for a mural that would be painted on the foundation of one of the former Coast Guard buildings that would incorporate bricks that would be engraved with donors' names. This foundation is in a remarkably beautiful spot near the lighthouse and one can imagine music and dancing happening on this stage on a not too windy day. I created a cobalt blue glass for benefactor donors to our, save our lighthouse cause. I chose this color because my Nana used to collect blue glass and I distinctly remember watching the light shine through these artifacts that she collected and displayed in her kitchen windows. I also created a photo magnet of Cape Blanco at sunset in honor of my dad, which sold out and raised $525 for our lighthouse. He enjoyed being a part of helping to save our lighthouse. The campaign is beginning to gain traction outside the arts community. I'm already beginning to get calls from engineers who want to help save our lighthouse. Brian was contacted by a retired professor of manufacturing who is associated with a foundry in Chico, California, who wants to help Build cast iron parts that are corroded in the lighthouse. A local geologist and longtime resident of Port Orford has expressed an interest in engineering a short term fix to the lighthouse gate road that would buy us 40 years until a longer term solution can be put into effect. Public speakers and grant writers are wanting to offer their skills to help. We will have a website online soon for people who want to donate to our campaign, and next steps for us will be to identify suitable grants to help begin the process of restoring our lighthouse.
0: Excellent. You just answered oh, a couple I of questions.
5: Notes. I use notes. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, that's okay. No, I don't blame you. It's a lot to, uh, to remember off the top of your head. There's a lot going on, and uh, I want to, uh, you know, I, it's always great, great to me. I love hearing that the the arts are involved, uh, artists and photographers and musicians and so forth. I love the integration of those sorts of things, the arts, into uh, lighthouse preservation. Uh, so that's that's really good to hear. And you mentioned the website uh, coming. And I imagine when that website is up, people will be able to donate through it, maybe also buy the art print you mentioned and some other yeah. things that, to help yeah. the cause so (laughs) that looks really nice of course our listeners can't can't see it but the the art print looks beautiful it looks sort of like a an old travel poster kind of thing
5: Mm -hmm, like wpa posters
0: yeah yeah
5: uh, charles is really interested interesting he was involved with uh helping green ledge light restore their lighthouse oh yeah i
0: know i know the owners uh tim petty Yeah,
5: yeah they and they they invited um me to have a conversation with them about fundraising ideas. Oh, So absolutely. I'm, I'm going to do that in the future. I had to actually get started before I was ready to talk to him. Sure. So, there's yeah. a process.
0: Well, so. Tim Tim Petty's a great guy. They've done amazing things there. Uh, you know, that's, he's that, they're definitely uh, among the, the best uh, private owners of a lighthouse anywhere that I'm aware of. So anyway, so uh, good luck with all that. And you mentioned uh, looking for grants too. I don't know if there's anything on the horizon, but I hope you uh, certainly can find uh, one or more grants because it's it's pretty, that's a, what did you say,
5: $684,000, is that? $682,000, that, that doesn't include the cost of fixing the road.
0: Right, right. I just like to ask each of you a little bit of uh, stuff about your background. I'm curious, uh, Brian and Catherine, What led you to become volunteers? And Catherine, we haven't heard from you yet, so I hope maybe we will hear from you on this, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about what led you to uh, be volunteers there.
6: It's really Brian's story, but he was born up in Langless and grew up down in Brookings. We wanted to host on the coast, and it happened that his 50th class reunion last year was a time when we could come down. We worked at the lighthouse at the Hughes house and at the end of the season we said can we come back and he said oh well yeah okay (laughs) so yes we we came back because we loved it we had so much fun this year we're going to have to go home a little bit earlier but it's been a wonderful summer it's a great thing to offer to the public and we get lots of appreciative comments
0: oh I'm sure yeah Brian I don't know if you want to add anything to that
3: Just that after a lot of years in academia, being able to just get in, visit with people, not have to grade papers, all that sort of stuff. This is a much easier way to be.
0: Yeah. Were you a teacher or college professor?
3: I was a college professor. I taught business and economics.
0: Ah, okay. Sounds like uh, you found a a good place to be. And Brian, you're a volunteer docent, meaning what? what? What kinds of things do you do?
3: My job is to do the interpretive work at the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. Um, I start, well, depending on how busy we are on any given day, generally in the morning, I start at the visitor center, explain a lot of the history, and then take people over to the lighthouse. The biggest part of my job, I think, is being what I call an Mm edutainer. I give education, but I entertain people. Little stories like the big barrels that are there, explaining that, in the language of barrels, a beer keg is 12 and a half gallons. That's a half barrel. So two barrels make a hogshead, two hogsheads make a butt. Uh, the that I get from that one are just amazing.
0: I've heard all those terms, but I honestly didn't know, uh, you know the relationship and how many... Uh hogsheads equals a butt and all that. So (laughs) thank you, thank you. I know I'll have to to replay this so I can learn uh, a little bit more about about those things. So it sounds like your education background has come in handy with uh, what you do with the lighthouse. And Catherine, are you a docent also or what sorts of things have you done as a volunteer?
6: I handled the uh, front desk in the gift shop. I I do know a great deal about it. You hear it time after time and some of it soaks in so when it's quiet, I can can give a little bit of background to folks who don't want to do the whole tour.
0: Well, thank you. And uh, Mike and Teresa, Mike, you've already filled us in about the fact that you were the park manager, the state park manager, uh, a number of years ago. And uh, I guess you've stayed involved in one way or another uh, pretty steadily.
2: Uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that story. I'm retired now. <laughs> You you know, I put the effort into getting all of these things started. They, you know, put the seeds together, created the opportunities for people like these great people that do hosting for us. Brian and Catherine, I thank you for doing that. Uh, And, you know, I oriented and worked with many, many people over the years that hosted the Hughes House and Cape Blanco and the Heads and, other parks and and all kinds of lighthouses and you know i i appreciate the work that that those people have done now my management and bosses along the way thought i was crazier than a loony bird for even thinking i could get somebody to go out and sit in a cold old damp lighthouse and do anything that was constructive but we proved them wrong so um from that we, we're we available to people like Rebecca, and I'll let Teresa explain that more, but um, we're not as actively involved anymore in it. I share Rebecca's passion for uh, getting the lighthouse repaired and put back together and her $640,000 is probably another $400,000 short. So you got to be looking at a target of a million dollars or more by the time it gets done. So sure. uh, I would, I would say that easily as a retired contractor as well. Yeah. Um, just Cape Blanco is an extremely difficult place to work in. Uh, I was there and present for most of those repaintings that happened. They were done through, both the State Historic Preservation Office and the BLM stuff, you know, those mistakes got made in thinking that what we need to do is protect the bricks from intrusion from the water from the outside. Mm -hmm. What it caused was then the open bricks on the inside drew the moisture from the air into the building so you know they they weren't meant as being harmful they were meant as trying to do the best job to protect the lighthouse and so we need to understand that it wasn't mispainting. it wasn't a you know an intended thing it just was something that happened as we got newer and newer products that were available that had more abilities um not necessarily did we realize the results of Of course what happened with that
0: the science of paint has continued to uh, develop over the years, so uh, there's a, a more we I, know now about those things.
2: Mm-hmm. I think more and more importantly for me here is to hand this over to Teresa and know, yes. that, you know she has created uh, books that have helped people understand about the lighthouse, the Hughes mm-hmm. House, the Heritage Society, the Coquille Lighthouse. And she's written those books specifically so that it could help our docents and help our uh, public understand the lighthouses better. And so she continues to make those available to them. And I'm going to let you talk to her about what she's doing today.
0: Absolutely. So, Teresa, how, how what made you get so interested in the history of the lighthouse and the surrounding area there?
4: More or less because of my husband's job. I've lived at Cape Mears. I've lived behind Umqua. River Lighthouse, and of course, we've actually lived out on Cape Blanco for nine years. It's hard not to get bitten by that lighthouse bug. So I have done a slide program for Oregon State Parks when I was at Cape Mears. and I just kind of kept tumbling until I'm now kind of Rebecca's sidekick when she needs to have information. I can help her out. So that's more or less about all I do now, but... I like going out to the Lighthouse. I like talking to people about it, the Hughes House as well. But bottom line, um, education and writing the books so that people can take the information home, especially you know, if families buy one of my little booklets, then they have that opportunity to share information with their kids. And hopefully the whole circle will keep the preservation of all of our lighthouses going into the future.
2: I want to do a little bit more and tell her thank you. You know, even though she's my partner, is she was the basis for all of the research, all of the history initially for all of the work that was done, both at the lighthouse and at the Hughes house for uh, all the historical research. And so all of the stuff we do today is based on her work. You know, when you think of that, that's, that's pretty fantastic. Yes, she wrote books from the other that. And then I'm going to give her another one. She is such a fan of lighthouses that she actually created a silkscreen quilt business that made quilt blocks for quilting uh, of the lighthouses on the Oregon coast.
0: Wow. Well, that is really neat. Tell me more about that, please.
4: Well, actually, I am now retired because... Um... I came to a point where all of my artists that were working for me, except one, have all passed away. So I just decided that um, I was going to close that chapter of, you know, my business. So, but we did sell one heck of a lot of lighthouses, lighthouse quilt blocks, and I will tell you, point blank, that almost eighty percent probably went out through Yucuna Bay. Oh, really? Yep, lighthouse. That little place is it's highly popular. It's a populated yeah. area, and so they just sold them like crazy. I mostly could hardly keep keep up with that specific customer.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went there. It was pretty busy the day I was there. It's an, it's beautiful the way they've restored that to a period. Uh...
4: It's a neat little lighthouse there. Yeah, and you know, homie, that's that's what that lighthouse is. Is homie.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect word for it. Rebecca, I'm just wondering, even though the lighthouse is closed right now, I'm sure you're always looking for more volunteers. Is is that correct?
5: Yes, that is correct. We're always looking for new vol- volunteers, docents, greeting center cashiers, membership chair people, committee members, newsletter article writers, living history actors. We also welcome creative people of all disciplines to participate in our Save Our Lighthouse campaign and other CBHS projects. We are currently in need of archivists interested in digitizing our local heritage.
0: Is that all? <laughs> that's, that's that's great that you have it kind of uh, you know divided up that way. But any any group like yours always needs more volunteers. I know how it is. Uh, people come and go, and people unfortunately all of us are getting older uh people uh you know leave for different reasons or can't stay involved and there's always a turnover so yeah. monthly
5: volunteers like uh, or, or longer term like brian yeah. and Catherine, we offer a rv space so you, you know that's we pay that so they for their volunteer effort and uh those are really critical to the seasonal mm-hmm. uh functioning of our group because it's nice to have people that Learn the history and know, you know, the the tour and, and how to operate square, you know, so that yep. kind of long term is we really need some of those going into next year.
0: So, Rebecca, maybe just a little bit more about how you came to uh, be the executive director of the Cape Blanco Heritage Society. How did that how did that all happen?
5: So my path to this position is linked to my long career as a web designer involved with archive projects. When I noticed that the position of executive director was available a couple of years ago, I had one of those aha moments where I knew it was a good fit. I've also been involved with a website featuring historical photos of Port Orford since I first moved to the town 20 years ago. So it was just a natural progression of work I had already been doing. An interesting side note is that one of the servers in a project I was involved in with the Internet Archive was actually called Pharos, after the lighthouse of Alexandria. So I got a kick out of that connection. The lighthouse for me is associated with the illumination of knowledge. Also, my family has a history of working in transportation. My father worked his entire life for the railroad, beginning with Louisville and Nashville Railroad, which merged with the CSX transportation. The benefactor donor glass I designed borrows their slogan, safety first. My mother's father owned and operated his own airport in Kentucky and heading out to the lighthouse always brings back these vague childhood memories of that place. Because of this, the transportation and navigation aspects of lighthouses is something that is very appealing to me. And lastly, my husband and I, own and operate our own gallery and 100-year-old building in downtown Port Orford. So we bring our unique blend of creativity and experience in business, event planning, grant writing, and building restoration to the mix.
0: Excellent. I was going to ask you about the gallery. So is it like a craft studio and gallery? Is that, or how would you define it?
5: It's new media and fine art. And it has, we have sculpture, we have internet art. Uh, My husband has a little uh, side studio where he paints murals and he painted this painting that your listeners can't see right behind (laughs) me. It's
0: a beautiful painting.
5: (laughs) To save our lighthouse. He did it right here on site. And I also have uh, two large format HDR printers. So I'm really popular with the photographers in town, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is, the reason why it's easy for me to collect historical photos because, yeah, photographers love HDR, ink.
0: Oh, that's that, that works out works out well for everybody. So I know there's it's a beautiful area certainly I've I've been there and uh, like I said the whole Oregon coast is so gorgeous but right around uh, Cape Blanco I understand there's other things to see including hiking trails is that right?
2: When we moved to Cape Blanco there were two trails. There was one trail down to the beach and it was more or less a game trail somebody had followed. And the second trail was to the restroom in the campground. And so I'm a trail person. And so I worked hard at creating the miles and miles of both hiking and equestrian trails that are on Cape Blanco to uh, hike and to visit. So, Um, including a horse camp so that you can camp at Cape Blanco with your horses and use the trails. There also is the roadway that goes down to the beach on the south side that uh, was accessed for the Hughes family to gold mine, another story. And yet there weren't actual trails. So now there are trails to the Hughes house. There are trails to the beach on the north side. Um, And in fact, Eventually, we incorporated the beaches and the trails along there to be part of the Oregon Coast Trail program, and yeah, they're all signed.
0: Yeah, well, you've been instrumental in developing so many so many great things there. And I was thinking how I I didn't I was in kind of a rush when I was there last time. I feel like I gotta go back and experience more and uh, hike some of those trails and and stuff. Please so I hope, do. I hope so. I hope I can get back there. I really do. So uh, you mentioned Mike. You I think uh, alluded to the weather. Or maybe, I forget which one of you, maybe it was Brian, alluded to the weather uh, at the Cape there, uh, and certainly wind is a prime ingredient of that.
2: I I think I have the best stories for that, if you'll allow me. Uh, Absolutely. They can can fill into that. But let's start with kind of, you know, a lot of high winds. uh, And so let's talk about, Oregon had a significant storm called the Columbus Day Storm in 1962. And um, at that time, uh, it laid waste to much of uh, Oregon coast and the the valley. Wind speeds, the anemometers broke at 140 miles an hour. Cape Blanco was no difference. Their anemometers broke. Um, You know, others were in the area. So nobody has an actual recorded high speed of the Columbus Day storm. But that was significant. It actually closed one of the trails on Humbug Mountain that was built by the CCCs in the 30s, and that wasn't reopened until I became manager here, and I reopened that trail on the north side of uh, Humbug Mountain. But one of the most interesting stories is I was involved in some tourism projects along the way, and some friends that I was working with developed a relationship with the Weather Channel. And Jim Cantori is Mm -hmm. a very prominent individual in the weather channel. And um, so we were doing some things along the Oregon coast at that time. And um, we went out to Cape Blanco during this storm. And we were actually up in the lighthouse. And I was talking to Jim Cantori on the phone when the wind gusts hit at least 100 miles an hour from the lantern room at the Cape Blanco lighthouse. So Uh, we've experienced, Teresa and I, in our nine years, there experienced many storms of 100 miles an hour plus. And it seems like we just haven't had those kind of storms in the last few years. Um, not near as much as we did back in the late 90s and and storms before that. Yeah. So, I mean, we experienced the Friday the 13th storm when we were north at, at uh, Cape Lookout. And it did tremendous damage uh, to the Oregon coast, not so much on the South coast, but the North coast. So we've experienced some pretty severe storms here. (laughs) Um, The other thing I'd like to note, and and the host can do this, um, hurricane strength wind is classified as 75 miles an hour. It used to be not unusual that Cape Blanco would hit 70 miles an hour during the summer on a good afternoon. Okay. I mean, that, it's really unusual, but it's not unusual for 40 or 50 mile an hour winds in the late afternoon yeah. in July and August from yeah. the northwest winds at Cape Blanco.
0: I guess the lighthouse keepers and families uh, probably couldn't hang their clothes out on a line very often. So I don't know
2: how they, they must have dried no, their they, clothes. They, they hung them out. They just they just knew how to do that. Um, yeah. And there are all kinds of stories of during the war that uh, some of the dogs that were used for the beach patrol were blown off the edge of the cliff during a storm and they had to go rescue them. And the logs are full of, if you read them, stories of the wind breaking. There are, you know, there's an existing story that was in there that, that there was a fist size rock that came up and went through the glass window in the lighthouse and extinguished the light and the, how the lighthouse keepers use the ropes that were tied from the house to the lighthouse to use the rope to cross over during the storm and go up and place plywood during the storm, place plywood windows to block the broken glass window wow. where a man had to climb on the outside of that glass. And they strapped it with ropes on the inside pre-built to do this and then climb back into the lighthouse and then relight the light because that was their job. So, you yeah. know, my hats off to the lighthouse keepers. <laughs> I am, uh, yeah. I am fascinated by what what unique individuals lighthouse keepers were and the job that they performed.
0: Oh, for sure. If that light had to be on sunset to sunrise. There were no excuses whatsoever. Uh, and to uh do that repair during winds like that, and also to uh, for the wind to throw a rock of that size up to that height is is mind boggling i can't I just can't imagine and it, yeah. how high does the wa- does the water ever come uh, I'm sure the no, two hundred foot
2: it's two hundred yeah. foot cliff and then seventy foot for the lighthouse, so no,
0: yeah, the water doesn't ever come to the top it of the ne- cliff or it
2: never comes you know a tsunami would not reach the lighthouse
0: okay? right well, that's a so. good thing. Yeah. Uh, So I want to wind things down here, but I've got one final question for each of you, and this one's for bonus points, okay? What do you enjoy most about your association with Cape Blanco Lighthouse? Who wants to go first? This is Catherine.
6: I love the views out our windows. I love meeting the new people. So those are the two things for me.
3: Mm -hmm. Brian, you want to go? So what I would probably say is honoring veterans. The tower has absolute unique acoustical properties and on my tours I always ask if there are veterans and if they are I'll turn around and sing the first few bars of their service song
0: oh oh, that is that is great (laughs) what a great idea I've never heard of that anywhere else I think it's it's fantastic all right who wants to go next I will Rebecca
5: I, I truly enjoy being an advocate for our cultural heritage because the the three sites that Cape Blanco Heritage Society represents are treasures that need to be preserved
4: for future generations.
0: For sure. All right, uh, Mike and Teresa, in either order.
4: Michael says it's my turn. So, bottom line, <laughs> I like just being able to go out to Cape Blanco and feeling like you're on like the edge of the earth. I don't know how to explain that, but you know, into infinity as far as you can see.
0: Yeah. Am I correct in saying it's the most far westerly point of Oregon? Is that correct?
4: Of Oregon, Oregon, yes.
0: Yeah, not the West Coast, but of of Oregon.
4: Of Oregon, yes. I guess the question you ask
2: is, is a big question for me. I'm sure. Because I guess I'm proud of my association with Cape Blanco Lighthouse. I'm proud of the effort that has been put into it. And continues to be put into the preservation and the cultural and historic knowledge that continues to be used to better the the Cape Blanco Lighthouse, to better all of our knowledge and all of our experiences that we can have. So as the person that, that had this first dream, I couldn't be prouder of where the people have gone since then, uh, Rebecca. Of all of the volunteers that have been there over the years, one time we were putting over thirty thousand people into the, light, into the lighthouse.
0: This is in a year? Is that correct? In a
2: year, those hmm. are recorded. Those are recorded numbers of how hmm. many people actually entered the lighthouse. Probably a
0: on a busy day, probably hundreds. I would guess. Hundreds.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure it's. So is it even more today when the lighthouse is actually open or?
2: uh, I don't think today because you have to walk out there and the, and the concerns and the fact that you can't go in and and look, the, the allure was to be able to walk up for, for lighthouse fans was to walk in a lighthouse and go up and stand beside the lantern. I mean, you can go to Cape Mayors, but it's not operational. Right. See? And Cape Blanco is still operational. That's one of the things, if I could say anything, it's its preservation, is find a way to not only preserve it in its building, but to keep it operational, keep it working as a working lighthouse.
0: Well, I've heard it said before, of course, it's nice to have Fresnel lenses in museums where people can see them up close, but uh, it's even better to have them in their their uh, natural habitat uh, still still working, still doing the job. be able
2: to look the monster in the eye, (laughs) operational. I can't add,
5: we do do continue to track those numbers. And in my letter writing campaign, we were at 28,000 visitors for all three sites. So Mike's correct. There were busier days. He's just talking about the lighthouse itself. So, you know, coming off of COVID and this plan that shut us down, you know,
0: Rebecca, just one more quick question. You said there's a website coming. Do you do you have a timeline on that? Do you know when the new website will be available?
5: My goal is by our next board meeting, which is September 12th. Oh, okay. We're going to incorporate the work of Charles Ziga. And um, so in, in the interim, if people want to donate, they can send a check to Cape Blanco Heritage Society, P.O. Box 1132 Port Orford, Oregon, 97465. And please write, save our lighthouse in the check memo.
0: Mm-hmm. But
5: we will have a website launch.
0: Okay. Well, by the time people are hearing this, it will probably be launched because this is uh, penciled in for September 24th. So what would the website
5: be? Society.com. Oh, I'll make it Cape, real prominent. So.
0: Society.com. So uh, Rebecca and Catherine and Brian and Teresa and Mike, I just want to congratulate you on everything that's been accomplished there over the years. It's, it's a great place. It's a, the history is tremendous and it's very beautiful. And I want to wish you the best on the, the new fundraising campaign to restore the lighthouse. Thank you all of you for all you do. And thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank
6: you. Thank you.
1: To learn more, check out capeblancoheritagesociety.com. The site includes tour information, a donation page, and an online shop.
0: I have great memories of my visit to Cape Blanco in 2015, and it was a pleasure speaking with today's guests. I hope to get back there sometime.
1: Be sure to visit uslhs.org to learn about tours, the research catalog, the passport program, and everything else the US Lighthouse Society offers. Remember that donations and memberships help to support this podcast.
0: To everyone out there who works to save lighthouses and other history, thanks for all you do. We're all on the same team. Speaking of teamwork, do you have a quote, Cindy?
1: I do. According to an African proverb, quote, If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Unquote.
0: I like it. Next week's episode of Lighthearted will feature a discussion of the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum in Maryland. Until then, to all our regular listeners and our new ones. Thanks so much for listening and
1: keep a good light
3: I'm gonna let it shine I'm gonna let it shine let it shine let it
6: shine. Let it shine.